This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you very much uh, indeed and uh, welcome uh, to the first day of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, welcome to Edinburgh, to many uh, of you here uh, as well. An exciting 18 days uh, we've got uh, ahead and an exciting hour that we've got, uh, got ahead uh, uh, right now. Uh, I'm Douglas Fraser, Business and Economy Editor at BBC Scotland uh, as my day job uh, and I'm here to ask some uh, questions. You're also here to ask some questions uh, of our guests. And it's a big honour for me to be interviewing uh, Mervyn King, who um, has, he's, he's now an author, but obviously he's got quite a CV uh, behind him, uh, an, an academic uh, economist to trade until he joined the Bank of England as an economist uh, and was 22 years with the Bank of England, the last 10 of those uh, as governor. And they were quite an eventful 10 years, uh, I think. Uh, um, and in, interestingly, that he could have told the story of that in the book that he's written. Uh, he hasn't really. I mean, there's, there's an element uh, of that in, in the book. Uh, but he's gone a lot further uh, than that in the book, which we're going to be uh, d discussing. Um, I should add also that he, uh, as if life wasn't tough enough, he decided to dabble in football uh, after, <laughs> after uh, <coughs> ceasing to be governor. Uh, I don't think we'll ask you about Aston Villa, because it wasn't the happiest of experiences. Um, they won today. They they won okay. today. So he's, he's in a very good mood today. First time since February yes. the 6th. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the, the book, the, the End of Alchemy. Um, interestingly, I'm, I'm going to ask you one question about, about the name on it, because it's one of these books where the, the author is much more important than the, the title. Mervyn King doesn't mention the fact that you're Lord uh, Mervyn King, or indeed a Knight of the Order of the, the, the Garter. What's the protocol for not using a title when you could? Um, well, I think you just the author has his name and not the titles or decorations. Did you, do you find the title it? sort of gets in the way? No, I think the title is the most important thing on that cover, Douglas. Right, OK. The end of we'll, alchemy. We'll, 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 we'll go with that. Tell, tell me, first of all, about um, writing the book, this being a, a book festival. You... You'd had 10 years as governor, and, and, and it always strikes me for, if you're governor of any central bank, you have to weigh your words incredibly carefully, you know, one, one raised eyebrow in, at the wrong moment, and markets move. I mean, there's a lot of people watching you for the tiniest sort of nuance of what you're saying. All of a sudden, you're free, you don't move markets mm -hmm. uh, anymore, and you, you're able to say what you want. Now, some people would write a memoir at, at that point, and indeed many people have about the period that you uh, were governor through, because it was a fascinating story to tell. You didn't write in a memoir, you took a different approach. Why was that? Well, first, I've always wanted to come to the Edinburgh Festival, and the only way I could think of getting here was to write a book. <laughs> <coughs> and, uh, but you're right, I didn't want to write a memoir. I think that is something which only professional historians can really tell the story of what happened when they have access to all the papers and the views and judgments of all the participants. A memoir is almost always going to be self-justifying, and I didn't think it was appropriate to write it. Nor did I want to write an account of the crisis, because there were many of those. But deep down the reason was that during the crisis and afterwards, it seemed to me that although many people were writing about the story of this crisis in terms of you know, who's to blame and how can we put them into prison. 
that seemed to me completely unproductive. Even if we put a lot of people into prison, it wouldn't stop another crisis occurring, in my view. And actually, it was a failure of ideas. <clears throat> and I wanted to write a book about why the ideas that everyone, not just banks, but central banks, governments, economists, all these people who've been thinking and writing about the economic system, there were deep flaws in the ideas that lay behind it. And I wanted to write a book about the ideas. And can, can, I, can I rewind it? Because I want to go on to these ideas. Obviously, that's the, 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 the main thrust of what we're doing today. But on the question of, of, of writing a book having been constrained, had it having to butt in your lips so much as, as governor, indeed the previous period as chief economist as well, people are weighing your words very, very carefully. <coughs> You're an economist and clearly from the book you've got a very inquiring uh, mind and a good sense of humour and everything. I mean, how frustrating is it to be in that role where you have to weigh your words so carefully? Well, it is frustrating to have to weigh them so carefully because even one misplaced word can lead to it may not move markets, but it, what it will certainly do is to be misinterpreted in the press. And I think that the great relief I felt was not saying things that were being reported in the press. I mean, it, it, getting away from the press was a big, big plus. But I generally was very interested in the ideas and why they were wrong and wanted to write about it. And I think one of the benefits of being in a central bank for 22 years and not being able to say you know, everything that you would want to say in your own words is that when you get the chance to write it, you know exactly what you want to say. It makes it a, a much better book uh, a, as a result. But also, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine, apart perhaps from the Archbishop of, of Canterbury, uh, yeah, a more establishment role than being governor of the, the, the Bank of, of England. Lord Chancellor, perhaps, might be another one. But you, know, you were at the pinnacle of the establishment, and yet there's a, what comes through it is a bit of an academic radical. You like to... Um, you like to... to push against uh, consensus a bit, push against the establishment uh, thinking a, a bit. Is there a bit of that in your approach to this book that you, you want to re-establish your academic radical credentials? In what you're no, because I think in many ways the, the sharpest critique in the book is of the academic economics profession. Uh, I think I, I plead guilty to being a non-conformist. <clears throat> perhaps, perhaps, perhaps my upbringing, my father was a non-conformist lay preacher. And I think that concern for how does the world work, how can we make it a better place, not being satisfied with where we are, uh, does run fairly deep. Um, I tried to make changes when I was at the bank, and we did make some quite big changes. But afterwards, I was able to look at the system as a whole and, and, and ask questions of the kind, you know, why is the world economy not recovering? Why is the banking system so largely unchanged relative to where it was before the crisis? Well, let's go into that in a bit more detail and talk people through, uh, assuming that not everybody here has uh, read the book and can therefore be tested on it. We'll test you on it uh, instead. Tell us. This is deeply worrying. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm assuming you know what's in the book. Um, well, I haven't read it for a while. I <laughs> yeah. You, you uh, start off by, by saying what, what went wrong. And, and yep. in fact, you reach the end of that section and say, that's actually the consensus. Uh, and you're, you're keen not to play the blame game. You mentioned Fred Goodwin. He's not here, by the way, is he? <laughs> You've mentioned Fred Goodwin uh, once or twice. But I mean, it's, it's not about the personalities. And no, you don't not. want to play the, the blame game for reasons you, you've just, just <coughs> said. Do you feel there's anything in, a, in, in addition in, in, in this book, in your account of what happened, that we need to understand beyond everything that has come out and been established as a consensus of what got us into trouble and how it was handled? I think there are several things. I think one is that it was developments in the world economy more generally that led us to the 
edge of the crisis. And without those, and in particular the, the rise of China, the fact that it wanted to have an export-led growth strategy, the fact that Germany wanted to create a monetary union, which in the end led it to have an export-led growth strategy, the fact that other countries therefore had to have trade deficits to balance the surpluses of the countries that had the export-led growth strategy, the fact that this meant there was a lot of lending and borrowing going on in the world economy, the fact that because of that the banking system, the role of which is to meet the demand for greater borrowing, and the fact that as a result of the exports and the extra saving that China and Germany and other countries were, were making, that kept pushing down interest rates. So the single most important factor which lay behind not merely the cause of the crisis but also the cause of our present problems is the long-term decline in, in interest rates, in particular interest rates after adjusting for inflation, what are called real interest rates. And they historically have almost always been, insofar as we can measure them, around three and a half, four, four and a half percent a year. They're now down to zero. And that is utterly unprecedented. And it's been continuing for a long time. The, the, the actual fall started in the early 1990s, and it's been pretty steady ever since. <clears throat> what that did was to keep pushing up asset prices, because if the interest rate at which you're discounting future returns is falling all the time, then the present value of those future returns is going up. Uh, and so house prices, share prices, government bond prices, prices of fine art, fine wine, kept going up. And in those circumstances, it's quite easy for people to persuade themselves that because the value of their portfolio is going up, they must have superior judgment to other people. In fact, everyone was benefiting from it. But it's a, it's a common problem. You know, you seem to do well, and the natural thing is to think, you know, I wasn't lucky, I was talented. I mean, how many books do you see in airport bookshops by famous industrialists with the title Boy, was I lucky. <laughs> you know, it's, it's much more, do you want to be sincerely rich? I will tell you how. How I became a, an industrial genius. In fact, there's a very large element of luck in all of these things. I had luck in my life. Um, and anyone who succeeds does have a big share of, of luck in all that. So <clears throat> the consequences of all this, I think, was that uh, the banking system persuaded itself, A, that the smart people could make money by trading, when in fact they were benefiting from the fall in interest rates. And secondly, they thought it was safe to lend to other people without issuing new equity finance to ensure that the balance between the equity finance and the borrowing by the banks themselves was in some kind of equilibrium. And what happened was that the banks borrowed so much money themselves that their balance sheets became exceptionally fragile. And what the crisis did between 2007 and 2008 was to bring home to people this. You know, the classic example is Northern Rock. Northern Rock, only a few months before it failed, had the annual general meeting where it said to the shareholders, according to the new Basel II, the international standards, for the amount of equity finance that banks should issue, we are the best capitalized bank in Britain. Which was true, according to the international standards. Only weeks later, they literally ran out of money. But when they made their statement, <coughs> the so-called leverage ratio, that's the ratio of the amount of money which, the, which Northern Rock had borrowed from depositors and others in the financial market, to their own equity capital was 80, 80 to 1. Now, if you try and run a business 
where the ratio of the amount of money you borrow to the, your, your own assets is or 80 to 1, it requires a mere ripple in the surface of your market for you to go bust, essentially. Of course, it's fine if your asset value just keeps on going up and up. And, if, and, and, if, and you if. were listening to a chancellor at this <coughs> time telling the country that he'd put an end to boom and bust. Um, did you take him aside and put him right <laughs> in some of the economics? I, I, I don't think anyone uh, involved believed literally that the end to boom and bust had come. But what was very true was that after the 70s and, and early 80s, with very high and volatile inflation, I mean, inflation was 27% in this country, 13% in the United States. We then entered a period in the 90s and early 2000s when we had a remarkable degree of stability. And the mistake it was... the was nice decade, I think, was... Uh, so I called it the nice yeah. decade, the non-inflationary, consistently expansionary decade, precisely in my very first speech as governor to point out that it couldn't continue. That was the point of the... And you haven't yet found an acronym that works for nasty, but we... Well, we, I, had, we I did have one uh, after that. Um, but... The point of that was, was to say it wasn't sustainable. And what happened in the period between you know, the beginning of the st stability that was created at the end of the inflationary period and then the crisis was that the stability became confused with sustainability. And what was happening was that it was only stable because we were borrowing more and more and more. China was lending more and more and more, as was Germany. None of these things could be sustained. And the crisis brought home to people the fact that we had been spending more than we were producing. And so people naturally, when they realized that, cut their spending. And ever since, authorities, central banks in countries like the US and the UK have been cutting interest rates, desperately keen to encourage people to spend. Now, very usefully in this <coughs> book, usefully from my point of view, you ask your own questions in order to answer them. So I, I'm going <laughs> to copy your questions because they're very good ones. Um, why, when you saw this happening, when others, uh, HSBCs mentioned, for instance, the board there could see that uh, what RBS was doing was uh, mistaken. P people could see a, a problem, and yet it was impossible for anyone to do anything about it. So that was one of the questions yep. that you put. And then why, moving on from that, why has so little been done beyond a lot of extra regulation on banking, why has so little <coughs> been done since to make sure this can't happen again? Well, let's take the first one, because I, I think the difficulty was, for many players in all this, it didn't make sense for them to take the first move to try and prevent the situation carrying on. The best example, I think, one I give in the book, is Chuck Prince, a lawyer who'd become chief executive of, of Citigroup, biggest bank in the world at the time. And he said, just before the crisis hit, and the phrase he used was, you know, he was asked why they keep, kept trading in these fancy derivative instruments. And he said, well, while the music's playing, we've got to go on dancing. And what he meant by that was a perfectly sensible response. If he had said five years earlier, we think these instruments are too risky, Citigroup is not going to trade in them at all, he would have made lower profits than his competitors each year after that. And the board would never have allowed him to stay as chief he'd executive. Have he'd but have been fired much but earlier. To continue the imagery of, of the party, <coughs> of course, it's often said of central bankers that your job is to wait until things are the party's hotted up, then you take the punch bowl away. Uh, and so it's central banks that uh, so central could take banks, some responsibility. Central for banks that. were also facing their own prisoner's dilemma problem, as I call it in the book. And we debated this on the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England in the late. 1990s, and I gave a speech on it in 2000, and we said it's clear that domestic demand, spending by UK people at home, 
was too high relative to our long-run incomes. And at some point, would have to be cut. But what would happen if we raised interest rates now? We had a trade deficit. What we needed was for sterling to fall, and then we could reduce domestic demand so that the higher exports created by the lower exchange rate would offset the weaker demand resulting from dampening down domestic demand. And we were faced with two possibilities. One was, if we raised interest rates, we would undoubtedly almost certainly create a domestic downturn, a recession in the UK, because if you raise interest rates, normally the exchange rate goes up rather than down, and we would have found ourselves not just dampening domestic demand, but also dampening export demand, and we'd have had a recession. The, 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 the contrary position was, well, let's raise interest rates. When people see the economy slowing, then the exchange rate may fall spontaneously. That was what we might have hoped for, and we had a real debate about it. In the end, the view that two-speed growth was better than no growth won out. You can argue whether that was the right decision or not. But the problem was that no one central bank on its own could guarantee that by trying to rebalance its economy it could achieve that. Uh, and I think this was an example where only countries working together could, could achieve that. And interestingly, exactly the same is true now. China, for example, knows that it cannot go on with its export-led growth strategy because people in Europe are not buying their exports. We haven't got the money to do it. They know they need to boost their own domestic spending. But they're very nervous about taking the steps to achieve that without knowing in advance that we're going to rebalance our economy so that they will be able to have confidence that the jobs lost in their export sector will indeed be created in their domestic sector. And I think what we desperately need now is some international leadership in which perhaps the IMF can give up a more public political role and play a much more behind-the-scenes role to try and persuade countries not to have some artificial plan but to just to talk to each other and just convince each other that everyone is going to make a serious effort to rebalance their own economy. Only well, in that way, I think, are we going to get back to sustainable growth in the world as a whole. What you're also calling for in the books is for it's what you are talking about earlier, ideas. You want a different understanding of yes. the economic underlying um, functions, the processes, and particularly as, as it applies to banking and, and money. I mean, you're saying they've made capitalism facilitated its success, but they've also been its Achilles heel and, yes. and that we don't really understand banking or money properly. Now, there's a, there's a, a, a very extensive um, lecture series or indeed more books on that subject, but in, in, in brief, what, what is it you're arguing there? Well, I think that the world is so uncertain. I think economists in, since the Second World War have, I think for understandable reasons, tried to become more scientific. But in the process, have tried to convince themselves that economics is like physics, that there are natural laws of the world which govern economic behavior. And I just don't think that's true. And I think the big insight of Keynes was that, and he, although he didn't express it clearly in my view, that, but the big insight was that the thing that really drives booms and slumps are big changes in people's beliefs about the future. And the reason why these can come about in an apparently unpredictable way is because we can't create markets in all the future goods and services that people might build or consume or want to sell. That the, because the future is unpredictable, 
you can't write down a list of all the various future possibilities and attach probabilities to them and in that way be able to price risks. There are various things that can happen in the future that no one can anticipate. And you're drawing a distinction between risk, which you can yes. attribute some uh, quantitative element to, and yep. uncertainty, yes. which, you, which you can. You just don't know what's, yeah. with, what's with going risk, on. With risk, life insurance, for example, life insurance companies can provide life insurance because they can observe the probabilities of people dying at different ages. There are other risks. Will there be a, a, a big slump? Will there be will there a revolution in China? Uh, will the euro area break up? Where it is simply impossible to attach a probability to it. And there is no model <coughs> from science or economics which you can use to predict those probabilities. They're very difficult judgments. And other things will happen in the future that we can't even imagine happening now. These are the things, expectations of these things, are what drives booms and slumps. And you can't tell in advance whether it's one or, or the other. And this has an enormous implications for for money and banking, because in the end, the role of a central bank is just to make sure that there's enough money to support growth in the economy, but not so much that you get inflation. And it's there to act as an insurer of last resort. When there's a catastrophe, just as when there are floods in parts of the country, we didn't expect floods to occur. Collectively, through the government and our <coughs> tax revenues, we provide insurance to the people who suffered from it. And I think in the end, the government has in the way to be the insurance to the banking system. But what it has to do is to make sure that the banks, in normal times, pay the insurance premium. That's what went wrong before the crisis. Banks didn't pay any insurance premium before the crisis, and yet they needed the cash during the crisis. Some, someone described it as a, your idea as being like a, a, a pawnbroker of last resort, yes. that they, they have to put in assets in order to be allowed to operate. So the, 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 the traditional idea, which I think the Americans still hold, is that when banks get into trouble, the central bank, their Federal Reserve, our Bank of England, just throws money at the problem, lends to the banks. And if it's just a crisis of confidence, then com when confidence is restored, the banks can repay the money. The problem is that, that that view says you don't need to worry about preparing for a crisis in advance. You just do it when it happens. You can see this in the memoirs of Ben Bernanke and Tim Geithner, who were in charge of dealing with the American issue. You know, stuff happens, crises occur, you wait for the crisis, lend money to the banks as much as you possibly can, throw money at it, eventually the banks will pay it back, then you go back to normal. The, the problem is that that it doesn't work in, in the current banking system because it was based on the idea that when banks did need money quickly, this was the 19th century idea, they'd just pop round the corner to the Bank of England and say, I've got some short-term government assets here, which are easy to value. We'd like to borrow full value of this in cash so I can pay out some of these depositors queuing at our doors so that once I can pay them off and everyone can see that I can pay them off, they won't bother to queue again. And that worked fine because banks had enough of these short-term pieces of paper. The Bank of England took one look at them and immediately lent 100% of it. Let me fast forward you to 2008. What happened when Royal Bank of Scotland got into trouble? One afternoon they, they said, well, we can't get to the end of the day. So I wrote out a cheque for £36 billion because we couldn't have the ATMs closing and the banking system collapsing. And I said to my staff, I said, um, so what's the security against which we're lending to RBS? It's um, sort of mortgages, they said. And I said, but, but whose mortgages? We haven't got any idea. Because they hadn't had 
you know, we hadn't prepared for it in advance. The, the traditional theory of the central bank being a lender of last resort was based on the idea you just did it at the moment. You didn't need to prepare for it. That worked in the 19th century. Banks had changed since the 19th century. It doesn't work today. So what we have to do is to say to banks, uh, we're going to make you prepare for this before the crisis. And what we're going to do is to say to you, um, you've got to bring some of your assets, the loan books that you, you make, to the central bank in normal times. Central bank will take its time, look through the loan book and value it and make you a promise. It will say if at any point in the next five years or so you need cash, we will lend you so much in the pound against this loan book. And it could be as low as 40 or 50p in the pound. And what the banks are told is you've got to bring enough of this collateral security to the Bank of England in advance in normal times so that at any point you've got a credit line at the central bank which would be sufficient to cover all the short-term deposits or other sources of borrowing which could run away at a moment's notice. Once you've got that, then everyone knows there won't be a bank run because the Bank of England is committed to providing the cash necessary to stop the bank run. And that's all done in advance. And that's what we need to move to. Now, I know this wasn't a memoir, but I have to ask you, when you talk of writing a cheque for £36 billion, you subsequently simply created £375 billion of quantitative easing? Yes. Um, that's quite a good thing to have in your CV. Um, um, but it probably, well, probably <coughs> raises your wife's expectations for Christmas a little bit, I guess. But what, what's it like to be, uh, from your perspective, to be in the midst of, of having to um, deal with such big sums and big risk and big threats? So these are the things that actually we were trained to do and know how to do. And the people who found the crisis dramatic were those people who watched it on television. It was a lot more dramatic on television. Because once you're doing it on all hours of the day and night, it's a sequence of meetings, decisions, and so on. And it becomes much more routine. So actually dealing with RBS was remarkably straightforward. We knew what had to be Drive-by shooting is what Fred Goodwin no. described it as. Yeah. I don't, well, he wasn't referring to me when he was talking no, no. about the shooting. Yeah. Uh, and what had to be done to rescue RBS was very clear and straightforward. You could not allow the banking system as a whole to collapse. Of course, what had not been done was to make RBS or any of the other banks pay the insurance premium each year in normal times so that they would qualify for the insurance payout. I think a lot of the political problems that arose from bailing out banks would not have arisen had we been able to say, well, okay, this is a crisis, but all the banks in the country have been paying an insurance premium every year since the Second World War without having to claim on it. Now's the time when they're entitled not to get money for free, but just to borrow money, and we're prepared to do it. Now, coming out of it, w one of the things that people said immediately was, w we have to shore up the property market because we can't afford for colossal numbers of repossessions. The Americans went down the road of many more repossessions of these mortgaged uh, properties. And the pressure was put on banks <coughs> to ensure that they didn't foreclose on uh, loans to business. So businesses were, were propped up. We talked a few years ago about zombie companies that really ought not to be functioning but were being kept going because of this political pressure quite often on banks. We're still in that position. I mean, these are still there, these companies, that the repossession rate remains remarkably low given everything that, that we've been through. And it seems, I think I'm right in saying, that your argument in the book is that we need really to flush a lot out of the system 
either by forgiveness of debt or by some really radical changes, letting the market decide on interest rates, on uh, currency exchange, uh, which could have really big implications, letting companies collapse in order to get efficient uh, distribution of, 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 of assets towards growth companies. Uh, it's quite a painful message that you're, you're sending here, which comes right back to, it's not about central banking, it's about people's household yes. banking as well, and, and, and the, the personal debt pile being absolutely enormous still in Britain. So let me start with a sort of overall view. Uh, the book is pessimistic about the short to medium term. There's no question about that. But actually it's very optimistic about the long term. And in many ways, this is the opposite of the conventional wisdom. If you look at the discussion about central banks, particularly in the United States, there's always this commentary, just about to have a recovery, just about to have a recovery. They've been saying that for eight years now, and we haven't had it. But in the longer term, it's now fashionable to write books and, and, and articles saying productivity growth has fallen, it'll never come back, future economic growth is going to be much weaker. I think that is completely false. Let's just take the first bit you know, for, for, for the moment. That basically, the story which originates with uh, the, the advent of China and the former Soviet Union into the world trading system is a world in which interest rates kept coming down. And that led economies to take poli pursue policies which were unsustainable. We created what I call in the book a disequilibrium, in which some countries were exporting too much and spending too little. We were spending too much and exporting too little. Overall stimulus to the economy doesn't resolve those problems. You've got to restructure the balance between spending and saving within all of these major economies. That can't be achieved by monetary or indeed just by fiscal stimulus. That's a short-term problem, short-term solution for a short-term loss of confidence. We've gone way beyond that now. It's a major disequilibrium. And what we have to do is to uh, move resources from one sector to another. So all of the major economies, including China, Germany, the US and the UK, invested in the wrong things. China and Germany have over-invested in the export sector. We over-invested in, in the US in the housing sector and in the UK in commercial property and some aspects of the consumer sector too. As a result, some of the assets in those sectors are not profitable anymore and the loans that were made to finance those assets will have to be written down. When I was at the bank towards the end of my time there, we were forcing banks to write down some of those assets and forcing them to issue equity finance so that they could absorb the losses that would inevitably result from that. The euro area has done very little on this front, and the banking system in the euro area is a source of great concern and fragility now. Still. Still. The Chinese financial system is a source of great concern and fragility. There have been defaults already. There will be more. Only yesterday, the IMF published a report saying, you know, half of the Chinese uh, so-called shadow banking sector, the, the instruments that were set up to finance the infrastructure spending they put in place after 2008 to try and get a recovery there, um, half of those are in serious financial difficulty. So the world as a whole has got now to rebalance the economy and that means that some debts won't get repaid and some assets which, are the co which correspond to those debts on other people's balance sheets will have to be written down. Now there's a hope that by trying, if everyone tries to rebalance their economy together, it's not impossible to imagine we might find our way through this in such a way that we don't then have to have significant debt defaults. But if we don't rebalance together, then I think we will see defaults. Do we need a sense of crisis in order to get that kind of uh, cooperation? 
Well, it's certainly Cause, cause true. Clearly, back in 2008-9, yeah. people were cooperating because it was very clear that there was a crisis. But that quickly <laughs> ran out and people decided to look after their own interests. I, I was very struck that the cooperation began at the first meeting of the G7 central bank governors and finance ministers meeting in Washington in October 2008. It carried through the G20 meeting in London in the spring of 2009 when Gordon Brown chaired that meeting. Uh, but by the end of 2009, it had gone. And from 2010 onwards, countries were just doing things in their own self-interest. And it's turned out to be a, a massive problem. Uh, I think most economies in the world today are saying to themselves, you know, if only the rest of the world was growing normally, we'd be fine. But since it isn't, we aren't. So what can we do? Well, the answer in many parts of the world has been, well, why don't we just push down our exchange rate? Making statements, taking actions that may weaken the exchange rate. Very clear in the case of Japan, also now in the European Central Bank, trying to weaken their exchange rate in order to, you know, take a bigger share of the limited level of world demand that's there. And that's, of course, a zero-sum game, and it can't boost the world economy overall. So you, I think we, we are facing a serious problem. And what worries me is that the, the ideas which are used by central banks and governments, and even economists today, uh, don't diagnose the problem correctly. Any doctor will know that the secret to a successful treatment of a patient is to have the correct diagnosis. And yet central banks se seem to have the view still that the economy naturally grows at a positive rate, and every now and then you get some headwinds, they're called. And they're temporary by nature, by assumption. And so as long as you have a bit, bit of monetary stimulus, then the headwind will gradually abate of its own accord and we'll be back on the normal growth path and then we're fine again. But none of that works if you're in a major disequilibrium where the structure of the pattern of spending and output is wrong. Then the headwind doesn't abate. It's a permanent change which requires structural reforms to get out of. And I think this is a serious intellectual weakness of the way in which most of the discussion of the world economy is being carried out these days. And you just, what is so, so astonishing is that for eight years, central banks have cut interest rates, and then as the lower interest rate encourages people to spend today and not in the future, then the data improve and people think the economy is picking up. And so they say, oh, the recovery is coming, we can raise interest rates in the future. Well, then what happens is, having brought the spending forward from the future to the present, you know, the present becomes the past, what was the future becomes the present, and you've got to do it all over again. So you have to keep cutting interest rates merely to stay where you are. Central banks are like someone riding a bicycle up a, steep, up a, up a hill that's getting steeper and steeper. They've got to pedal faster and faster just to keep the same rate of momentum. And well, you end up in a situation where you end up with negative interest rates, when no one believes that the fall, any more falls in interest rates will do any good. You've got to have these structural changes to the so pattern of the economy. What would you then say, bringing it up to date, uh, to the package of measures, first really major package of, of, of uh, monetary measures since you ceased uh, being governor with a cut again? Your, your, your record low rate has now been beaten uh, by Mark Carney to a quarter of 1% <coughs> of plus quantitative easing and this incentive to get the banks uh, lending, uh, using the additional money to, to lend. Uh, I know you're, you're not going to criticise your successor, but what now does, does that answer the problem or does it still fail to, to diagnose the problem? Well, if we have a short-term downturn because of a loss of confidence or 
greater uncertainty as a result of the Brexit vote, then you know, these measures may well make a lot of sense. It may also be sensible to have a temporary incentive to invest. Um, that's something the, the government will have to think about before the autumn statement. But what I think needs, and Mark Carney started to do this, is to make very clear speeches saying that the, the solution to our underlying problems cannot be monetary policy. Monetary policy buys time. It's like a bridge to a permanent solution to these imbalances. He's, in he's the hinted as strongly as probably as strongly as, as he can, that the government needs to step in. It's very cheap at the moment to borrow money, to invest in infrastructure. Business is calling for the same thing. You're but this a lot is not freer to, to say, is that what the government, the UK government now needs to do to... But this is not the answer to the problem, because the answer isn't just to have more spending willy-nilly uh, on, on domestic demand, and, and whether it's consumption or government spending. The answer is that our economy and the other economies have to rebalance. We need to move towards net trade. We have a trade deficit of 7% of GDP. That's a record high. That's almost as high as the Americans got when they were the one country in the world that everyone was happy to lend to. That's not true of the UK. So I think that we, we do have a, a real concern about the size of the trade deficit. And yet, I, I 16 years after you were discussing how on earth you get the currency weaker, the electorate's gone and done it for you. I mean, it's taken a wee while to get there, but it's... it's, it's uh, uh, as, as my wife said uh, the day after the Brexit vote, she said, but every central bank in the world has been trying to, um, to lower their currency for the last two years without any success, and the British people did it in a day. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the point to make about this, though, and the reason why it's not quite so, uh, such a, a happy outcome is that the, the exchange rate uh, today, as of the effective exchange rate, which is the average value of sterling against all the currencies with which we trade, is only about 3-4% below where it was three years ago. And the reason for that is that in 2014 and 15, sterling rose against other currencies by an average of 16%. That's one reason why we got a large trade deficit. And so part of the fall in sterling that occurred after the Brexit vote was inevitably going to have to happen, irrespective of whether we remained in the EU or not. And it may yet have to go further. We just don't know. I've been hogging the questions far too much, and we've dealt with past, present, future, um, and very topical uh, as well, but I did say that it's for you also to be asking the, the questions. And I can see a couple of hands. We'd better wait for the microphone. There's one up at the back here, and there's one here, if you can get the microphones there. Before you speak, though, this would be a good time for me to thank the Institute of Directors in Scotland for supporting uh, this event. They're new neighbours of, uh, of the book festival here in Charlotte uh, Square. I think probably their, their logo is somewhere. Indeed it is. It's up there. Um, yes, your question. Um, can I ask you, um, can the UK ever hope to isolate itself from another financial crash, given that it needs the freedom to operate in a global market, and that freedom provides the conduit through which other um, future investment vehicles of crazy sort of nature could uh, come into the UK and therefore destabilize it. So I don't think we can ever isolate or insulate ourselves from a major financial crisis if there is one in the rest of the world. But I do think that by making our banking system safer and by trying to rebalance our economy, we can both ensure that the crisis doesn't originate here and we can ensure that the impact of a crisis overseas the impact on our economy is diminished in so f as far as possible. 
I, it is very striking that the, the loss of confidence in the world as a whole after the collapse of Lehman Brothers in October, September 2008 was largely because around the world people felt if that could happen to the most developed financial center in the world in New York, it could certainly happen to us. And I think there was a sense of real shock that if New York had a massive financial crisis with banks just falling over like that, you know, people losing confidence in banks, then it could happen elsewhere. <coughs> and I think the reason why, I, I, I think that over a period of years we should move towards my proposal for a pawnbroker for all seasons is that it would stop banks being so dependent on confidence in their position being undermined by short-term depositors or people in financial markets who lend uh, short-term to banks. You know, there's room for that, but only insofar as the central bank is willing to provide a credit line to the bank against their assets to support that short-term finance. So I don't want to stop banks borrowing short and lending long, but I want to constrain the extent to which they can do it and use the central bank as the vehicle to judge the effective insurance premium that banks pay. But was it, part of the question you were asking was to, uh, to what extent can Britain seal itself off? Was well, it the argument would be that if you put restrictions on... Sorry, there's a microphone about... Still sorry about that. Just, then we're going to this gentleman here. If you restrict the banks in the way, the way they're going to operate by putting constraints on them, that puts them at a, a competitive disadvantage in a global marketplace where they may like to trade, and therefore the city of London may suffer. Therefore, we've got a two-way street. By opening it up, you're opening yourself up to the dangers of other financial instruments coming in. And rather like what the Americans did, try to push the can through Lehman's onto the bank, onto the London to pay the bill for it all and everything else. Can you, if you want to come back in that, feel free. Yes, but I'm okay. going to get this chap here to yes, of course. Uh, ask his question. Thank you. According to John Kay, British banks average seven trillion lending each year, but only two trillion of that is to non-financial service sector, business that, is to, that do things. The rest, five trillion, is trading with itself. If, the large, if a large part of this five trillion could be redirected to more productive use, would this not be a fantastic boost to British industry? So at one level the answer obviously is yes. But the question is, why aren't banks lending to, to industry? And it's not because there's a shortage of finance for banks to lend. After all, they create the deposits which they use then to finance the loans that they make. It's a question of the demand side. And the, the, the real business sector in the UK is not asking to borrow more. There are a number of reasons for that. One is uncertainty about the future. But the other is that we fail to put in place the incentives to businesses to produce in areas where they can be confident there'll be demand. I think that the fall in the sterling exchange rate will now make it much more likely that businesses engaged not only in exports but also in the production of substitutes for things that we import from abroad. Those businesses will now have a bigger incentive to want to invest for the future and thence to ask the banking system to borrow. I think w one of the mistakes that was often made in the analysis of the crisis was to believe that somehow banks forced other people to borrow, and they didn't. Banks were responding to a demand for borrowing, and much of that demand for borrowing was to finance existing assets, not create new assets, but existing assets. Why? Because as I explained, interest rates kept falling in the world economy. The prices of all assets, you know, equities, bonds, 
fine wine, art, all those assets, houses, all these prices were rising. And people had to borrow more in order to finance the purchase of those assets, even if they were borrowing it from other people who didn't have large loans. And this, this, was, what, this was the real essence behind the expansion of mortgage lending. It was driven by borrowing. It was perfectly reasonable borrowing demand, provided that interest rates remained low. And I think the, the, the real responsibility which the, the major policy authorities around the world have is to ask themselves the question, do we think that this level of long-term interest rates is sustainable? And if not, and I don't think it is because it's hard to imagine a market economy functioning at such absurdly low interest rates, then we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we going to get back to a world of normal interest rates? And it's no good central banks just pushing up short-term interest rates because that will create another downturn. What we have to do is to recognize that it's this imbalance in the world economy, the fact that some exchange rates have been fixed elsewhere, particularly in the euro area, is making it very difficult to rebalance the world economy, and the fact that countries are finding it hard to gear themselves up to work with each other in a common enterprise to rebalance the world economy. If we could do that, then I think you would find the demand for borrowing by businesses that have profitable prospects would rise, and then banks will be willing to lend to them. There's a question over here. Uh, hello. In the wake of Brexit and Cameron resigning, the Labour Party in chaos, the one stable figure that seemed to be there was Mark Carney, you know, trying to reassure markets and um, keep everything going. I I'm wondering in what, you, in what you said about central banks um, in general and what they need to do, whether it would be better if they had a lot more independence and could create their new structures talking to each other without so much interference from government? Well, I think this is very difficult because central banks were given independence to do specific things. Monetary policy, which was always seen traditionally as, you know, sometimes interest rates go up and sometimes they go down. Uh, of course, when interest rates went up or down, it did affect some people more than others. Some gained, some lost. But the fact that interest rates sometimes went up and sometimes went down meant that people saw this as a game of swings and roundabouts and that on average central banks were not favoring one group rather than another. That's actually come under pressure in, in recent years when interest rates have just seemed to go only one way, which is down. And that's clearly penalized savers um, and, and made life easier in the short term for, for borrowers. Um, this, is, this is a difficult area and I think what central banks must avoid doing is taking decisions that Parliament believes ought to be taken by the government and the elected political authority. And that involves, you know, if, if central banks start buying a lot of private sector assets, I think they should be very nervous and very cautious about doing that. Um, you're that, right that that's you're after they've just announced they're buying £10 billion worth. No, that, uh, of, of commercial bonds, of co yeah, of company bonds. bonds yeah. Well, I think this is a questionable area. Uh, and it's not one I'm sure they want to go very far down. The, I'm sure it's being done as almost an emergency response. But if, if we carry on down the path towards lower and lower interest rates, people will start to question the independence of central banks. And I think the more important thing now is for central banks to say, look, our job is monetary policy. The answer to our present problems does not lie in monetary policy. I think it can make that statement and say the responsibility has to rest with others. 
without telling others what they should do, but making it clear that the nature of the problem calls for a non-monetary uh, prescription. And that, I think, is the important thing. We uh, have limited time left, but there's a, a question here. I was just seeking some information about how does the authority of the Bank of England uh, relate to the FSA or FCA regulatory powers? Right. So before the crisis, there was the Bank of England on the one hand, which just did monetary policy, and the Financial Services Authority, the FSA, which did all regulation, the whole lot. After the crisis, uh, and particularly after the new government was elected in 2010, there were major changes to the regulatory system in which the financial regulation of banks, that is the amount of equity finance they're supposed to issue and the amount of liquidity they have, sort of things we've been talking about today, that has gone back to the Bank of England. But all other regulation, which you can think of as a more legalistic type of regulation, regulation to do with protecting investors and customers, uh, regulation of insider trading or the LIBOR trading scandals. All of that lot has gone to a new body called the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA. Overall, and I say this clearly in the book, my worry is that we've introduced such complex regulation that we've not really hit the target we needed to hit. The two problems for the banking system were not enough equity finance to absorb losses that they might make and not enough uh, liquid assets to enable the central bank to be confident about how much to lend to the banking system. A combination of more equity finance issued by banks and the pawnbroker for all seasons are the two most important things to my mind. A lot of the other regulation could then be abolished. I was brought up to believe that ignorance of the law is no defence. The rule books governing the banking sector now are over 10,000 pages. Well, I think that's a pretty good defence against uh, ignorance because what happens now is if you work in a bank, before you do anything, you have to go and talk to the compliance officer. This is not a healthy outcome. We've gone far too far in terms of detail of regulation and not far enough in tackling the fundamental problems that caused the crisis in 2008. Right, I'm going to take, we are running out of time, I'm going to take three, quest three final questions. There's a chap with the microphone already there. If we can get that mic up, there's somebody right at the back. Uh, I can just see a hand, so we'll get that one next. And I think there was somebody just, just here. So, yeah, you first, sir. Sorry, uh, Lord King, um, to what extent do you think the um, effects of Basel I and the Basel II agreements had um, encouraged banks to lend irresponsibly? which led to a serious undervaluing of, of assets going forward. Well, I, I, again, Let's explain what these agreements yes, were. Well, ba Basel I and Basel II are, were international standards for the amount of equity finance that banks should, should issue. How much, on a, on a balance sheet of a bank, how much money should they be able to borrow relative to their own funds provided by their shareholders? And Basel I, Basel II, and now Basel III were increasingly sophisticated and complicated attempts to ensure that banks had the right amount of equity finance which they had issued. The problem is, and I don't blame the people working on it, they were intelligent people trying their very best. They were trying to write down very detailed rules that would apply to every bank in every country in the world, and they couldn't anticipate what would go wrong in the future. So this was the example I gave of Northern Rock. Northern Rock was able to say that it was the best capitalized bank in the United Kingdom, 
because the regulators had decided before 2007 that actually the only real risk that banks were facing was that they might lose money on the loans they made and the safest kind of lending was mortgage lending. You don't lose money on mortgage lending because house prices go on going up. Well, that was the only thing more than Rock did. So they actually had very little equity finance, but relative to the risk-adjusted size of the bank, which the international rules had predicated, they looked pretty good. But it was a mistake in the regulatory system. We are very rapidly running out of time. Can you get the question there and, and the one here? Uh, you first. In terms of Mervyn King's ideal rebalancing for the UK economy, what would that have in store for Scotland? Ah, yes. Well, I think... And, uh, sorry, okay, can you just right. get the other question yep. here? <coughs> Is this on? It's working. Sorry, but I'm just an ordinary guy. I've run a couple of businesses, and I've learned the, the results and causes and consequences and finding out information from other people in the, trade that I, the trades that I was in. How on this earth did the banking system collapse in such a sudden way in 2008, catching all you people out? Uh, Alistair Darling, I think, called on, well, someone called on him or uh, 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 the chancellor at the time to say, you know, we're going to go out this afternoon. Can we please have some money? I mean, planning and all that, that's what we learned to do in our game. What happened in the banking game? Well, the, 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 the reason why the... The reason it's why it's the a very long answer to that one, or, or, but it'll have to be a very yeah. short one. The reason why the banking system is different from other industries is that it does borrow short to lend long. And there is a, a value to that to society in having us. We don't want to have to commit all of our savings for 20 years in order to finance an industrial loan. And it, as long as most of us don't want our money back from the bank tomorrow, that's actually quite an effective way of financing industry and a cheaper way of financing industry with benefits for growth and investment. The problem with the banking system comes if at any point all of the depositors decide they want their money back tomorrow, the bank can't possibly provide it because it's been lent out. And that's when the bank collapses. And there is no way easily of predicting when that could happen. The solution to it is in the book. Just about to say. Uh, <laughs> the pawnbroker... The pawnbroker for all seasons means that no bank could ever collapse in that way again. And that's why it's so important to put it in place. And what the bank argues is that it won't be so costly. In terms of rebalancing... This, this, this is the longer answer. In, case you, in terms of rebalancing the English and the Scottish economies, I think the answer is very much the same. That provided we have more incentives for people to export and to produce substitutes for imports, I think what we would see is an extension of what has been happening in the economy for the last 25 years, which is we suffered enormously in the 1980s when we actually probably had to close down a lot of very large manufacturing companies that were no longer competitive in international markets. Making bulk products like steel is not our comparative advantage. Niche manufacturing products is. There is a wonderful engineering company in this city which has been going for many years since the 19th century. Many of the employees have worked there, their fathers worked there, their grandparents worked there. They are specialists in doing welding and technical operations at great distances underwater. One of their big uh, customers is the US Defense Department. It's a highly successful company. And there are lots of small, medium-sized companies around Britain, both in Scotland and in England, which can compete on a world stage, provided we're not just competing with countries using very cheap labor. We don't want to make mass production products. We do have this niche 
skill, which is a mixture of manufacturing and services. And I think if the exchange rate is at the right level, and if government policies are operated properly, then these companies will flourish, and that's what will generate the rebalancing. I'm going to, to risk being chucked out mid-answer to this one, but mention of Scotland, you're in Scotland. A debate has really opened up recently within the SNP and others who support uh, independence to move away from this uh, argument they were making for a shared currency. Uh, if there's to be another independence referendum, it looks like they're, they're opening up that debate about a different type of, of currency. So if Nicola Sturgeon <coughs> comes to you uh, and says, if we're going to have an independent Scottish currency, uh, how do we go about setting up a, a central bank and having our own monetary structure? Uh, what's your advice and would you be willing to take on the chairmanship? <laughs> <laughs> the, so, let me start with, a f I'd be very sad if, if Scotland were to leave the United Kingdom. Sad, not because of Scotland. Scotland could perfectly well be an independent country. I'd be sad because of England. Uh, the greatest economist in the history of the United Kingdom was Adam Smith. He was a Scot. The two most recent Nobel Prize winners in economics from the United Kingdom were both Scottish. Uh, and I feel that, as an Englishman, I would lose a lot if Scotland were not to be part of the United Kingdom. But to get back to your, to your question, I think the answer ought to be that the day after a successful referendum for independence, then the new Scottish administration, or the then Scottish administration, would say, we have no intention of having our own independent currency. We have no intention of joining the euro. I don't think that now is the time to consider joining the euro at all. I think it will have to be restructured to be remotely successful. Nothing will change. We're going to carry on using sterling. Nothing else will happen. And nothing else need happen. Just carry on as we are. It's a perfectly viable, simple arrangement. Now, of course, it has the problem that there won't be a Scottish monetary policy. It'll be a, a policy set for Scotland by the Bank of England. But actually, I don't really think the arguments for having a separate monetary policy in Scotland are that strong. And what Could the Bank of England be controlled by two governments? No, it couldn't. I think it, it, if Scotland were to become independent, it would simply say, we're going to use sterling, but we accept that only the Westminster government will appoint people to the Bank of England to its Monetary Policy Committee and set its remit. And I think the reason for that is that then nothing need change at all. I think we just carry on as we are. It's a perfectly acceptable solution. I think all other solutions do raise quite serious problems. And in particular, to become independent and create a new currency is, 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 to, is a hostage to fortune because you have no idea what people in global financial markets will do, they, that what confidence they'll have in the government. They may have irrational views. You can't persuade them to think sensibly about the future. And also we know that small currencies can be made very volatile in, in financial markets. I think the sensible answer will be to say, and this is why I, you know, I very much hope Scotland won't go down that path, because everyone in the world knows the merits of Scotland. You don't need to become independent in order to be known across the globe for the merits of what Scotland brings to the world. Uh, but if Scotland were to choose to become independent, and that's its decision, then I don't think it makes sense to take on the additional burden of a new currency when there is a completely cost-effective solution to just carry on using sterling. Uh, I take it that's a no to the job offer then. Yeah? Certainly. Yeah. I, I, I certainly w there are many great Scottish economists. It doesn't <laughs> need me to come and run anything in Scotland. Mervyn King, uh, thank you very much indeed. Now,
I've, I've run way over our time, so I'll be in, in, in trouble. I'd, I'd, I really would like to thank you for a fascinating uh, explanation of your book and way beyond and bringing us up to date with some very topical uh, issues. Uh, the final chapter of this book is, is called The Audacity of Pessimism, which shows that you actually belong in Scotland. There's a, there's a real <laughs> Calvinist strand coming, coming through there. Absolutely. It, it is, um, it, it's still only in hardback. I think softback's uh, coming ne next year. This is priced at £25. It is available in the signing tent uh, right next to here very, very soon, uh, as soon as we can get Mervyn King out of here. So please give him a bit of space to get out before you mob him, and any conversations you want with him should be had in the signing tent. Thank you very much indeed. Have a wonderful Saturday night, and thanks again to Mervyn King. Thanks, Margaret. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.